Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with the lovely Professor PJ Devereaux, who is a cardiologist and I hope is a name that you are familiar with. We are chatting ahead of the Combined Scientific Congress in Wellington, where he is a keynote speaker and where he will be presenting POISE 3, as well as other aspects of perioperative care, such as myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery. There's also the opportunity to sit down with him in a case-based discussion. In this podcast, Professor Devereaux and I chat about life in Canada and as a researcher, how he got into research, and we also get some behind-the-scenes insights into the POISE trials. Professor Devereaux also kindly lets me quiz him on some of the big questions in the perioperative management of patients with cardiovascular risk factors undergoing non-cardiac surgery. It's a great summary of the evidence in perioperative medicine as it stands, and hopefully provides some clarity for you and your patients. At the end of the episode, I'll share some more information about the Combined Scientific Congress. I'll also share some information on how you, as an ASA member, could potentially travel to Canada or other places such as the UK, US, South Africa to attend another scientific meeting for free or at reduced registration rates. More details, as I said, at the end. All right, let's get into it. It's such an honour to be talking with you. Thank you for giving up time. I'm going to be seeing you in Wellington and I might actually be chairing one of the sessions that you're presenting. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. We're greatly looking forward to the trip to New Zealand. Good. Have you been to New Zealand before? I've only been there once and it was for a short period in Auckland. My wife is coming on this trip and our daughter is currently doing her master's in Australia. So she's going to come meet us and we're going to travel around. Oh, fantastic. So we're super excited. We're really looking forward to it. I was just recently in Canada. It was my first ever trip to Canada. Oh, where'd you go? There was a Canadian Anesthesiologist Society meeting in Halifax. Yeah, Halifax. Wonderful. Did you have a good time? I had a really wonderful time. Yeah, Halifax is a great city. I'm from Nova Scotia originally, grew up in Cape Breton Island. It's a beautiful part of the world. And so you grew up in Nova Scotia and then now at McMaster's. Master University, which is in Hamilton, which is about an hour southwest of Toronto. And how are things? Because it's the middle of the pandemic, or who knows where we are in the pandemic? I think like everyone, there's no doubt it's had lots of challenges. The social isolation for a lot of people has been very difficult. And this two years has had a big influence. There's a lot of people who don't want to come into the workspace. The good news is, in general, we did quite well in Canada. We didn't have you know a lot, a lot of deaths. We had a lot of lockdown time. I feel for the young people who are trainees, who are during their residencies or medical school, I think it's a very different experience. But similar to what happened with the World Wars before, there was also groups of young people who really rose the occasion and really changed trajectory for medicine and had huge historical impacts. And hopefully that's what we'll see happen again. And even though there's no doubt it creates lots of challenges, there is the lots of potential for people to re redesign things. And one example is in our research group is that it leapfrogged forward in a big way our virtual care with remote automated monitoring technologies. So the big issue that exists in our hospitals that there was a huge shortage of space because of all the COVID patients and all the elective surgeries were canceled for a long time. But in those patients for the urgent emergent and cancer surgeries, over 20% of them tend to come back to emergency room and over 10% of them get admitted to the hospital within a 30-day period. And if you could cut that down substantially, that could have a very positive impact on minimizing their exposure to COVID and making sure we have enough space for people with COVID. 
And so we started doing research where we'd randomize people at the time of hospital discharge to either go home with normal follow-up or go home with a virtual tablet, which you could press in 24 hours a day, you had access to a nurse and a physician. And you also went home with very simple to use monitoring technology that would measure your vital signs where we would have alerts and we'd be notified about your vitals all the time so we could see how you're doing and you fill out surveys and you interact with the nurses. And so that was one example, I think, of where COVID actually brought us forward. I'd still rather we didn't have COVID, but you have to find the good in the challenges that exist. And I do think that it's brought monitoring technology post-operatively and virtual care post-operatively forward much faster than it would have happened. Wow, that's fantastic. Are you going to be talking about that at the meeting in Wellington? Yes, for sure. Great. I do think that the way we do digital healthcare, really, there's so much that can be done. So I think this is really exciting. Yeah, I think it's a very exciting moment for how we can reimagine the system and take advantage of what has happened to just make it better. Have you seen many other changes going on in the health system overall in Canada? Yeah, so we have a publicly funded healthcare system so that It's law that for physician and hospital services, it is funded through our governments and you can't pay for that privately, which I think overall is lots of positives to it. But every 10 or 15 years, there'll always be a group who wants to follow the American model and privatize the healthcare system. And we seem to be going through one of those debates at the moment. Uh, We have a lot of provincial governments who all of a sudden have started raising the flag that the answer is privatization. So at the moment, we're having a soul-searching moment of where the healthcare system is going to go. But hopefully, as in the past, we'll have some rational, evidence-based decisions as opposed to ideological decisions. On a positive side, we have complete coverage for hospital and physician services. We don't have complete coverage for drug. So if you're over age 65, drugs are covered. But under 65, it's not. So people rely on insurance or paying out of pocket. But the federal government has, uh, minority government, they've sort of made this quasi-coalition with another party. And that other party insisted that there would have to be a national pharmacare program and also a dental program. And so that'll be a very big step forward, I think, in a very positive way. We need a national pharmacare program. There's a lot of patients who I treat who are under age 65 and may have a heart attack or something. And even though it may be inconceivable to us that you wouldn't pay for your Crest store, for other people, that's a real trade-off that paying for that Crest store versus, you know, their kids having access to certain things, and that should never be an issue. And so... Hopefully that's about to happen, which would be a really big plus for Canada. Yeah, definitely. We have had a lot of interest from health insurance companies to set up schemes that look like the US-style managed care in Australia. And when I was looking into it more, I was surprised at things like in the US, insulin isn't covered. If you're diabetic, you can't necessarily monitor your glucose and you might not be able to afford your insulin, which uh, that's life-threatening and something that we can't understand here because we have a benefit scheme for that. So you'll always be able to get access to those medications. I want to talk a little bit about your research. I feel like we could probably talk forever about your research. It's probably going to really age me, but... When I did my anaesthetic training, the rage at the time was to start all our high-risk vascular patients on beta blockers. Right, right. And I think your work was really pivotal in establishing the evidence around starting people on perioperative beta blockade prior to their high-risk non-cardiac surgery. Yeah, I think the beta blocker story is a very fascinating 
story that it's remarkable that we had so many international guidelines that would affect tens and tens of millions of people on an annual basis saying give a drug to people when the evidence for it was incredibly weak. And also too, I think it highlights an important point that the natural instinct is that if something makes physiological sense and it works in another setting, and then there's some weak evidence that it works in our setting of interest, then it works. And I think that medicine is fascinating historically where we have all kinds of examples where that kind of thinking really got us into serious trouble. And again, it's not that it's inappropriate when that's the best evidence to do something, but it's very important for us to make the distinction that this is not strong evidence and we really need better evidence. It's interesting, when we were starting the POISE-1 trial, I just started doing my master's and switching to a PhD, and this is the first big trial that our group was doing. And I spent a lot of the first two years traveling around the world trying to convince people to take part in POISE-1. And there was enormous resistance because most people thought it's obvious it works and what could be the risk? And it's unethical not to give it. And our response was, we hope you're right that it works, but we owe it to people to be confident that it works and that it's safe and really understand its efficacy. And I think it was hopefully an important reminder in our field of just the importance of large clinical trials. Not the only thing that matters, but they matter a lot. And that we really need to require the rigor of big trials if we're really going to be confident about treatment effects. And it's important for people to keep in context. Beta blockers do work. They unequivocally prevent perioperative MI. However, what it also showed was that there are real safety concerns of beta blockers. This is clear signal of increased risk of stroke, and the strokes end up being very devastating strokes. And there's also this increased risk signal of death. And I think, how can we get the benefit but create the safety? I actually think that it may be through remote automated monitoring technology that we can do that, because the dominant pathway through which it appeared that the safety signal was happening was by causing significant hypotension when people went back to surgical wards and substantial delays in recognizing it and then delays in managing it. And then some people would get into serious trouble as a result of that. But if we could get to a place where we can have continuous non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring of people on surgical floors and we could predict even before you're clearly hypotensive and we could then intervene in a way that prevents it from happening there is the potential that we could get the benefits of beta blockers. There's a benefit to them, but at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that there is a real potential for harm. Hopefully the bigger message was just to help people realize the value and the requirement for a cultural shift in our area to mandate that we need big trials to really answer important questions. Well, I think it's definitely created that because you've just published Poise 3 now. So were people jumping up and down to be included in Poise 3? Has that culture changed? Well, it was interesting. Poise 2, we had also a lot of resistance and it went in two directions. There was people in centers who would not participate because it was so clear that aspirin was beneficial and people needed it. And there were centers who would not participate because it was so clear that aspirin was harmful and people would not benefit. And I think part of what we have to recognize as a community is that we may believe something is the right choice and that that's what we'd want for our loved one. But we should also be willing to acknowledge when there's at least community equipoise that there is uncertainty in our broader community and the evidence is not strong. But by the time we got to Poise 3, recruitment was a lot easier. We also had the challenge of COVID. We ended up finishing the trial 
exactly the time that we said we would. But if it hadn't been for COVID, we would have finished like a, a year early because recruitment was you know so much easier and so much faster. And I think that's the way that so many of these things go. You know, Poise One nearly killed us trying to get it done, and Poise Three, despite even COVID, was light years easier. Well, I'm glad you persisted with Poise One, that we're, we're here where we are with Poise One, Two, and Three now. Yeah. That's an incredible contribution to perioperative medicine. Thanks. I just want to make one point that they only happen because of the large collective. Australia played a huge role, as an example, in New Zealand. Kate Leslie, Tom Painter played huge roles in Poise Three and, and Kate in Poise One and Poise Two. They only happen because of a large collective around the world making it possible. I think we have to find still better ways to ensure that all investigators in all sites get the appropriate recognition and support from their centers for the research that they undertake. And then we incentivize people to be part of big trials because that's what changes clinical care. Mm, no research happens in isolation. Yes, for sure. I wanted to ask you how you first got into research. What was your path like there? I grew up in rural Cape Breton Island, and I ultimately decided I really wanted to pursue medicine. And I'd read this book as a kid about this Cape Breton doctor who would be doing an appendectomy on someone's kitchen table and delivering a baby somewhere and being paid with chickens. And when you come from a smaller community, the doctor plays a very different role in that community. And so my goal was to be a real doctor. So I wrote away to all the medical schools in Canada just to learn about medical schools and I then discovered McMaster University, which had this very novel program that was based on problem-based learning and lateral thinking and small group learning. So I thought, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to have for my educational experience. So I applied to medical school. I was lucky I get in and the first day our tutor walks in and she introduced herself and then she looks at the list of the students in the group and she says, who's PJ Devereaux? And I thought, oh my God, they screwed up the admissions process. And I, I said, I am. I said, why? And she said, well, she said, you're a very famous assigned mentor. It's David Sack. And I said, oh, and then I asked the unaspable question, I said, well, who's he? And she said, well, he's a world famous clinical epidemiologist. And my first thought was, oh my God, like I want to be a real doctor. It sounds like I have some bean counter as my supervisor. And I'll have to figure out how I'm going to get a real doctor to be my supervisor. And uh, Dave Sack was just one of these characters, larger than life sort of personality. And after the tutorial, they brought us to our homeroom and it was a letter room. Call my secretary. We're going out to dinner tomorrow night and uh, meet this guy who would expose me to the world of research, which was the furthest thing from my mind. But the thing that just excited me about research was that I realized like even in a busy, long career, maybe you could affect lives of over 10,000 patients, maybe that's being a pure clinician going back to Cape Breton Island. But there was the possibility with research that you could affect the lives of millions of people, potentially. True. And that just really appealed to me. And then also it was just all the opportunity to travel the world, get to understand the world better, get to meet people from all these different places. It was all these things that just never occurred to me when I was going into medicine that would end up being a great fit for my personality and what I wanted to pursue. I did have a little list here of some quick fire questions. Sure. Do you want to do them? Sure. We've covered the first one. So this is for patients who've got moderate to high vascular risk factors undergoing non-cardiac surgery. Should we start them on beta blockers? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't start them on beta blockers in today's world. Again, I do think there's the potential that beta blockers will come back, but I think until we establish a safe pathway, that's not 
the best choice at the moment. So no, I do not start them on beta blockers. Should we be starting them on aspirin? So based on POIS2, I think it's very clear that we should not start aspirin. If you start aspirin, you will not prevent cardiovascular events, but you will increase the risk of major life-threatening bleeding. The other bigger issue with aspirin is people that are on aspirin, should you continue it? And there, the group for which the evidence is consistent and comes from a subgroup analysis within POIS2 is that people who've had prior cardiac stents should continue their aspirin unless they have a really super high risk of bleeding, but all of the patients should have it held. In the one exceptional group being that if you're having carotid surgery, those patients should get perioperative aspirin. Lovely. I think there's going to be a lot of exam candidates out there who might memorize what you're saying here word for word. What about, should we start patients if they haven't already been on them, statins? Yeah, so there's no strong evidence that statins do prevent perioperative cardiovascular events. There's observational data that looks suggestive, but not big RCTs. However, there's not really evidence of any harm, and the probability of harm is very low. So again, it's one of those areas where we should acknowledge the evidence is far from clear. However, with the current evidence, yes, if patients have vascular risk, I start them on a statin prior to their surgery, and I remind them it's very important they take it the night before their surgery, and then we ensure that the night of their surgery, like after they've had surgery, where a lot of times drugs are being missed and not given, that there's processes put in place that they actually do get their statin that night. And one that, again, has come around, when I was training in anesthesia initially, if people were on antihypertensives, we used to stop them. And now we continue antihypertensives. So what should we be doing? Well, I'll be sharing, and hopefully we'll be published soon, the POIS-3 results on how should we manage antihypertensives and what should we target. The short answer is that if patients are tolerating and they're on antihypertensives, that in general, they will tolerate them in the perioperative setting. In POIS-3, we do not see a risk or a benefit to actually holding or stopping chronic antihypertensives. But it is important to realize that does not mean that hemodynamics don't matter. They matter a ton. And moreover, as we see in POIS-1, is that if you introduce new medications, you can actually dramatically change the hemodynamics and have real effects on a lot of cardiovascular events. I say that it's safe to either continue or stop. I still think it's rational that you should base it upon their current hemodynamics and their underlying vascular risk. So if the patient has a low systolic in a pre-op clinic and they're on four antihypertensives, then I'll be telling them to hold their ACE or ARB on the day of surgery, plus or minus their diuretic. But I think we're in a place where it's becoming more clear that most people, if they're on an antihypertensive chronically, they will tolerate it during the perioperative setting. Can't wait to hear more about POIS-3. Yeah. All right, so now we're moving on to a slightly different category of questions. In patients who've had an acute coronary syndrome, either yeah. an MI or a non-STEMI, how long does it take for them to get back to baselines? How long would you defer elective surgery for? So most people in today's world, if they have an acute coronary syndrome, are going to end up with cardiac intervention and a stent. If you end up with stents, ideally you should delay the surgery for six months. But I want to be clear. That's for things that are clearly elective. Obviously, things are evolving rapidly in terms of our need for dual antiplatelet therapy. We can now get away with one month of dual antiplatelet therapy and then move to single antiplatelet therapy. And that in patients who have cancer or something else creates a very different paradigm where we can likely look at moving the surgery much closer. And that brings me on to the next question, which was, for a while there, there was a lot of excitement about drug-eluting stents and dual antiplatelet therapy and how long they should be continued for, but it doesn't seem to be much of an issue anymore. What's happened there? 
Yeah, so there's been lots of advances. So the second generation stents require much shorter periods of dual antiplatelet therapy, which have made for much greater stability of the stents and much lower risk of instant thrombosis. That's been a big advance that's made things a lot safer for us. This is to do with people who have got known things like valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, have been clinically stable. How often would you redo their cardiac investigations, for example, redo their echo to see whether that valvular disease has worsened or the pulmonary hypertension has worsened? I think all those things require individual clinical judgment. So to the extent that you have an echo in the last six months and Patients had no clinical deterioration. Most times I don't feel the need to repeat that, but if it's greater than six months or the patients had changes in terms of their clinical status, then it is. Now at the same time, if someone was moderate pulmonary hypertension even five months ago, and there have been reasonable progression over the last year and a half of mild to moderate, then in that patient, I still might repeat it because obviously it's very important for the anesthesiologist to know whether or not there is severe pulmonary hypertension. Sometimes it requires a reconsideration of whether that surgery is the appropriate thing for that patient. So I think in all those things, you have to individualize it. I think there's a tendency for people to, especially with urgent emergent surgeries, like hip fractures as an example, if people hear any murmur that they're delaying surgery to get an echo. And I think this will shift with point of care ultrasound, but I just think there's a lot of people where it's not necessary it's evident from just auscultation that this is not critical aortic stenosis and we're not doing people a favor by delaying the surgery substantially to get a formal echo. And a good distinction there between elective and emergency surgery. The risk-benefit changes very differently when you're talking emergency surgery. And then the final one is in a patient who is asymptomatic, when would you consider prophylactic revascularization? So they, for some reason, get worked up and then you find that they've got a critical LAD stenosis or something? Almost never. Our best data at the moment comes from the CARP trial. It was restricted to vascular surgery. Over a third of patients had three-vessel or left main disease. And even in that group, we did not see a benefit to revascularization prior to the non-cardiac surgery. I still think there's a need for even bigger trials in that area. But I do think that in most circumstances, you can't ignore that there is risk just with the original revascularization that you have to accept up front to then get to the non-cardiac surgery that you were interested in the first time. And so in most cases, it was my loved one as an example, I'd argue, let's go with the non-cardiac surgery. Let's put you in a high monitored setting post. And if you get into trouble with something post, then fine, we'll deal with it on the other side of surgery. But you have a lot more latitude on the other side of surgery in terms of intervening as opposed to if you intervene prior, again, you're looking at delaying the surgery for at least six months. So I think that the best evidence at the moment does not support revascularization for asymptomatic underlying coronary disease prior to a non-cardiac surgery. Great. Have I missed any other big questions in perioperative management of high-risk vascular patients? No, I think the two big things I'd mention is that I think what's really important is people realize the importance of measuring troponins postoperatively in high-risk patients. 90% of people that will get myocardial injury will not have symptoms in those Asymptomatic myocardial injuries are very prognostically important. And also, too, just the value of using things like NT, ProBNP, and biomarkers prior to surgery to predict and to estimate patients' perioperative cardiovascular risk. And they're much more predictive than the much more expensive and time consuming non invasive cardiac tests. And they're more predictive than even clinical judgment. And they're much cheaper than a consult. And so, I think biomarkers just have a, a big role to play in terms of helping us to more efficiently and effectively predict a risk.
Great. Well done. Well, I'll say well done. I'm speaking to the professor of cardiology here. What does life look like now for PJ Devereux? Just ignoring the pandemic. 20, 25% of my time is doing clinical care. So I was head of cardiology for many years, and then we had an opportunity to create a division of perioperative care. And then I took over as the inaugural head of that, which has been really fun. And we created these new perioperative care services that both do inpatient and outpatient work and also transitional care to the home setting. And then the rest is between research, education, and administration. And there's a blurring of all those lines. Prior to the pandemic, probably two weeks of the month, I was traveling somewhere in the world. Wow. For about 20 years. So, you know, travel starting to happen again, which is nice. Do you think you'll go back to the same pace of travel as before the pandemic? Yeah, I think it's a question that a lot of us wonder about and our spouses wonder about. I don't want to go back to exactly the same level of travel, but we'll see. And is the travel speaking at conferences like it is with the upcoming New Zealand meeting, or is it also meeting with research partners? Yeah, it's overwhelmingly meeting with research partners, and oftentimes I just tie it together where if I do go speak at some conference, so I'll go do that and then hold an investigator meeting for some study that we're doing. And sometimes you just need those face-to-face meetings because all the ideas are flowing, which don't seem to come across on Zoom so easily. Yeah, our relationships matter. Plus, it it's fun getting a chance to see other parts of the world. And I think also, too, one of the biggest things that surprised me when I first started traveling was just how much we all shared in common, even though, yes, there's differences. But what was very striking to me was actually the commonality of most people. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. And maybe that's a good moment to leave our conversation and say that I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in person. So thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, just... um. Great, looking forward to the meeting and seeing people there. And it's been a long time since I've been able to get to that part of the world. Lovely. Well, we're looking forward to welcoming you to this part of the world and wish you a very safe flight. Having traveled to Halifax recently, I do know how far away it is. It is far. And I wish you a good journey and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure getting a chance to talk to you and I'll look forward to seeing you in New Zealand. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat. And for someone so knowledgeable, I hope you could appreciate how approachable Professor Devereux is and also how much he enjoys talking about perioperative medicine. Hopefully you're inspired to come and chat with us at the Combined Scientific Congress. As I mentioned, it's in Wellington and it's coming up soon, starting on Friday, the 21st of October. I'll put a link to it in the episode notes in case you're wanting to find out more or register. I do suggest if you are interested in registering that you do get in quick because I've heard that there's been huge interest and accommodation is booking out. Also, if you aren't able to make it in person, then we do also have virtual registration as an option. Yes, it's a hybrid meeting. PJ mentioned collaborating with Professor Kate Leslie on the POISE trials. Well, I'm pleased to announce that Professor Leslie, who is a longtime member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists, is also one of the keynote invited speakers at the Combined Scientific Congress. She too will be talking about perioperative clinical trials and something dear to my heart, gender equity in research and practice. I'm also involved with organising a workshop on communication skills, such as how to introduce yourself and how to network at conferences. I'll be hosting that with Dr. Andrea Wojnitski. If you do want to find out more about Andrea, then I suggest you listen to episode 60, that's six zero of this podcast, and that episode is called Communicate Like a Boss. The Combined Scientific Congress is being hosted by the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists, as well as us, the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. You may have heard me mention in the podcast that I was recently in Canada for the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society meeting. Well, that is because our anesthesia societies, 
that's New Zealand, us in Canada, along with the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the Association of Anesthetists, previously known as the AAGBI, and the South African Society of Anesthesiologists, all form the Common Issues Group. If you are an ASA member and you are thinking of attending one of those scientific meetings hosted by one of our sister societies, then you may be able to register at local member rates. So depending on the meeting, this could save you thousands of dollars. If you are interested in taking up this ASA member benefit, then please contact us on asa at asa.org.au. Also, trainees can apply for an ASA scholarship to attend one of these scientific meetings, and that is worth $4,000. So in both cases, you do need to be a member of the ASA to be eligible, and for the trainee scholarship, you need to have been a member of the ASA for at least 12 months. I'll put a link to the ASA webpage with more information and the application forms. You will need to log into the ASA website to access it. All right, I could keep talking about the offers that are available for members of the ASA, but I do need to make sure that I get to Wellington. So for those of you who are coming, I look forward to seeing you soon. Please make sure you come up and say hello, maybe give me some feedback on the podcast. Otherwise, hope to see you as a virtual registrant. And whatever you're doing and however you're travelling, I hope that you're staying safe and well out there. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by me, Dr. Susie New, with music created by Dr. Mark Sous. The Australian Society of Anesthetists was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope this means that you are functioning at your best when you are away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire so that you keep performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all the episodes by logging into the ASA website, which is asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on asa at asa.org.au. We hope you enjoyed listening.